So these four weeks, you know, usually we've got these traditional words that we gather around the Advent wreath, faith, hope, love, joy, and we do the Christ candle. But after thinking about it over the last few weeks, I thought, you know what we could probably use here at the end of 2022? We'd probably just use four solid weeks on hope. It's not that these other words are bad, but you know what? Hope is something we could always use an extra dose of. So we're going to spend four weeks talking about just hope within the different confines of the Gospel of Matthew. And so this week, we're going to start with finding hope within anticipation. And as we're going to talk, you know, this doesn't exactly make it very easy to lead off with. This feels like a complicated passage. So let's work through it together. But as we start to take it up, I actually want to return in part to the quote that we looked at from Arthur Schopenhauer, also known as the world's most depressed philosopher. Here's, again, another picture of him on one of his good days. (laughs) Now, I won't read the whole thing to you because it was a very long quote. I just want to start at the beginning. And I did change this, uh, you know, made it uh, gender neutral. The one who has given up hope has also given up fear. This is the meaning of the expression desperate. And if you remember last week, we spent a lot of time talking about desperation being the opposite of hope. But what's interesting here is that hope and fear, at least in Arthur Schopenhauer's mind, are not opposed to each other, but in relation with each other. Despair, then, is a negation of both. It's a negation both of fear and a negation of hope. It's a situation where nothing makes sense, if you remember the balance of the Schopenhauer quote. It's almost as if you just might as well think the opposite thing is true. Remember, we talked about having a, having a lottery ticket, right? And you think for, for days you pray to God about someday you're going to win the lottery, and then you don't over and over again. And then the jerk down the street that never mows his lawn gets the lottery ticket and the win and then you're really frustrated you wonder why didn't God do what you asked for well then you might start to wonder well, is any of this worth it you fall into despair and when you get to that point where you've given up hope and you've given up fear well then you are heading straight towards nihilism as the sole approach to living To me, this is very similar. At some point in our lives, we all begin to recognize that the opposite of love is actually not hate, but it's apathy. At some point, we recognize that if you love or hate something, there is still a fervent movement in your heart. So the opposite of both love and hate seem to be apathy. The opposite of hope and fear is despair, not necessarily opposites of one another. And it's interesting to think about this more, how why we respond to something, should we not despair, but instead actually hope or fear. Great example. Am I afraid, for instance, for my children to have some sort of terrible accident that hurts them, or do I hope for the best and a healthiest life for them? Do I fear on a regular basis that I may lose my job? Or do I hope that I continue to succeed 
in my work? Is the world set for constant collapse and everybody's ready to fight at each other and everything is miserable and nothing's awesome? Or might there be signs of hope that are abounding everywhere? And again, with despair, if we think about these dyads of examples, with despair, we'd just say none of it matters. Life is meaningless. Everything wilts. The world is terrible. The end. You wouldn't even worry about the question. So having hope and fear on opposite sides, well, you can see that they're connected. And given our proclivity at any moment, we're likely to respond differently even to the same situation. For instance, the difference between bubble wrapping our children And leaving them at home, bound forever within, you know, you should put like a shock collar on them and make sure they don't pass your property line. You can do that. You can make sure they don't go anywhere. Or you can help contribute to positive experiences, helping them to grow. You know, it's the experience of sometimes you let your kids go up on the monkey bars and sometimes they'll fall. Sometimes they might hurt themselves, but they learn a little bit more. They learn more about themselves. They're able to grow. And so we hope that those experiences help them grow more well-rounded, more healthy as they grow into adulthood. Maybe if we're afraid of losing our job, we do just enough not to get fired. From anybody about my age, I recall the wonderful movie, um, office space. You just get those 10 pieces of flair. You don't need 11 pieces of flair. You do just enough not to get fired. And if you've never watched that movie, please go watch it today. Or do we try to actually grow into our positions? If we're not afraid of being fired, not afraid of losing our jobs, do we grow in that position, perhaps even strike out beyond it because we find ourselves outgrowing that position? And with the final one, we consider that the world might be falling apart, and so we're given into fear. We can understand how political polarization takes root in our hearts. You know, the more decay we see, the more that we create enemies, the more we see destruction, the more that we have to defend against those enemies that are causing the destruction of the country and the lifestyle that we love. And listen, that could be on either side of the aisle, but you can see if you're constantly prone to fear over hope, well, it can lead directions that aren't the most healthy. And I recognize, y'all, that the world is far more complicated and nuanced than those three examples, right? We can get through all sorts of details, but as we pull different levers, we can see how the percentages of hope and fear might sway our response to, this, to the same exact situation. Even given the day, depending on how we wake up, you might respond to the exact same situation that I have in front of me totally different based on how you respond with hope and how you respond with fear. But if you notice, at least in these three examples, and I think more often than not, what we have is action tied to both hope and fear. Now, it is very easy to connect action to fear. We talk about fight or flight all the time. Something scares us, the adrenaline gets pumping, and we will move. We often, though, don't talk about hope as something that's active. We almost consider hope as something passive, something that drifts off into the ether that we can aspire to. 
But I think it's a mistake to assume that hope cannot also be something that is active and can have concrete steps towards as we look towards what is coming. And again, as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, as we look at this gospel today, it could lead us in two different directions too, to hope or fear. If you ever wanted to have an interesting thought question that can drift you to sleep, as you're reflecting on it, sort of a, if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound kind of thing? Ask yourself this question and just sit with it. Was Noah afraid? God told him what was going on. Do you think Noah might have been afraid? As he hewed the lumber, put the ark together, watched what was going on around him? What about the other people in this passage? Certainly, I think we hear echoes of fear in regards to the thief in the night. If I listen to making sure that I stay awake all night because I know a thief is coming, I might be a little anxious, a little nervous, a little afraid of what's going to happen. Because fear, certainly the actions of fear feel a little bit more concrete than the actions of hope. So how can we make a choice of hope in anticipation? Well, it seems to me the answer is in part right at the beginning of our gospel text today. Jesus starts right at the beginning, and commentaries and theologians have struggled with this idea that Jesus sort of leads off this passage by simply saying, we don't know what's going to happen. Whether Jesus knows it is living with us and associating with our imperfections and our lack of knowledge, or whether he really didn't know is a great thing for, again, trying to go to sleep at night, and you're like, well, what can I ruminate on? Ask yourself, did Jesus really know when he's returning? It's a great question. But at least for now, let's just say that he is associating with the disciples towards the end of his ministry and saying, listen, none of us know the hour when I'm coming back, except God. We just don't know. And if you notice all the examples I gave earlier, each one of them is dictated by a fear of something that is completely uncontrollable. I cannot control every single thing that happens to my children as much as I'd love to. I can't control everything that happens to my job, nor can you. I mean, pastors have had really great runs and all of a sudden something turns on a dime and they're gone. I can't control the world. If I can't control what's happening with my children, I can't control what's happening in my job. I certainly can't control what's happening in the world. Noah could not control the flood. No one could control their disappearances, and the owner could not control the thief. So our fear truly may instead be resting in what we cannot control. And this has a direct connection to what we anticipate. I wonder how many of you right now, if you think about this, can say to yourself, you know what, I really struggle when I don't have control. 
of a situation. Does it feel like anybody in this room? I mean, even just a little bit? Is it just me? Natalie gets it. No, it's probably not just me, is it? I think most of us struggle. We feel like things are out of our control. But what we can control, even in its finitude, is all the infinite moments right here, right now. Your decision to come here was a choice. Your decision to leave here, go on with your day, the actions you make in this immediate moment are what you can control. This, of course, feels a little bit more fragile. Right now, I have pretty solid hope that my kids are okay in the back, but I don't know for sure. I'm hoping everything is going to be really mundane in the best kind of way here in service. We're going to have a wonderful service. We'll go on through our days. We'll watch the Jags win. I can't control that either. Um, But it's all the little moments. It's all the infinite moments. It's all the present moments. That's actually what we can control. And yeah, that feels a lot more fragile. That doesn't feel like something you can protect against, but I do think it's where we find the anticipatory hope that this Advent season invites us to consider. Because the promise at the end is already there. You know, we don't look at this Advent time just simply to anticipate baby Jesus in a few weeks. We also remember that we live in an already but not yet sure of the fact that Jesus Christ was born, died, resurrected, and is coming again. That is a promise that is there. It is at the end of time. It is there, I promise you. In Isaiah, we remember that weapons of war will turn into instruments of flourishing. There is going to come a day when there will be peace, there will be joy, there will be hope. All of the things we talk about in Advent, there will come that day. It's just we can't control it, and I'm sorry. But when we stop fearing what we can't control, we begin to see how fear, one that is healthy, allows us to avoid despair, in which we believe believing means we are destined to fail. By recognizing that we have no control, and we just say what we're going to do is hope in every single infinite moment of the present, we're going to do the things we can, then fear no longer is giving in to despair, but it's a caretaker. Let me give you an example. Let's talk about the capital campaign. Now, I know we have a big, lofty goal, right? I remember the first time I said out loud to somebody, oh, the goal is $6 million. I mean, I have gotten used to helping pick jaws up off the floor. That sounds crazy. 
And our lofty goal, our big $6 million goal, is that we believe that that building that we thought was a good idea, that we spent time talking to committees, we spent time talking to a real well-respected architect in Jacksonville, that that would be the thing that would help us do the ministry that we dreamed of when I started here a couple years ago, that this would be one of the most important vehicles to it. But here's the secret, y'all. We can't control the future. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or six months from now or three years from now. And you know what that could do to a church that has big goals? It, well, it could paralyze us. It, it's, it's the questions of like, well, did we, did, we, did we do enough studies? Did we study the studies? Did we study the studies that we studied? I mean, churches are really good at that. Analysis paralysis. We could bury ourselves so deeply into that and then doomsday ourselves into oblivion. There's no way we can have a big goal. There's no way we could do anything big. And you know, and that sounds a whole lot like desperation, doesn't it? Sounds a whole lot like despair. That at some point we say to ourselves, well, it doesn't matter what we try. It doesn't matter what big goal we set for ourselves. Whether we do 1 million or 10 million, we're just going to fail because that's what we do at South Jacksonville Presbyterian Church. Amen and amen. Let's go on and go watch the Jags win. See how that can go? Or, and this would be my encouragement to each and every single one of you, we could trust that we will get there when we get there and witness all of the infinite moments of hope that are abounding all around us. Do you know how much fun it's been for me to sit down with a few of you? Because, listen, yeah, the money thing, but it's fun to build relationships with each of you again. It's fun to get to know you more. Do you know that we've surpassed every other fundraising goal in the 100 plus years of this church's existence already? We haven't even really gotten started yet. In the midst of despair, there's hope. In the midst of fear, there's infinite moments of hope. We've shared with each other our hopes, our joys, our concerns, our worries, and we're growing as a community. Because you know what? Each time one of us talks to the other, we're growing as a community. We're stronger because of it. And it doesn't mean, however, that we're being foolish. And this is where fear and healthy fear comes into play. Because it's so easy for us to bury ourselves in fears of things that we cannot control that we just give in to despair, and that's the end of it. But there is something to be said about protecting our fragile hope with some of the healthy fears of not being foolish. Our fear of failure perhaps helped us caretake our hope. So even now, we're working with a general contractor to help us determine phasing options. If we don't get to $6 million, we'll still have a building. We'll figure it out together. We're making progress as a community. In the end, we're relieved to watch God's intervention in our lives and witness the hope that abounds around us, and it fuels us onwards. 
And listen, this is just one example, but it's, I know, on a lot of people's minds, right? Take any example in your life. Suddenly you felt paralyzed by fear. And ask yourself, are you more afraid of the things you can't control? Because there, I think we stop seeing where God's intervention is all around us. A little bit of fear helps us not drown ourselves when we don't know how to swim. Too much fear stops us from learning how to swim in the first place. Friends, I promise you, with all of the integrity and honesty that I have as a clergy person and all the commitments I made at my ordination and installation to be a pastor of the Presbyterian Church USA, I promise you that the end is sure. I could not do this job, be up in front of you week after week, care for you if I did not believe that Jesus Christ was born, died, buried, resurrected, and is coming again. I set my life to the tempo of that rhythm, and I hope you do too. And I truly believe that there is going to come a time when the weapons of war will no longer exist, that the lion will lay down with the lamb, that there is a time when things will be better. The thing I can't tell you is when. But I know it's going to happen. I believe it's going to happen. Otherwise, why do we show up here anyway? Why does Advent matter? What I want to do then is look for all the infinite present moments of hope as I wait in anticipation. It's every handshake and conversation I have with each one of you as you depart from here today. It's the phone calls I get when I find out one of you is in the hospital and I have a chance to go visit you. It's the ways you all still tease me about my Yankee accent. It's a gracious way none of you have said anything about Ohio State losing so badly last night. (laughs) What would it be like? What would it be like to have a church that does nothing but that? Looks for the infinite moments of God's intervention and says there are certain things we just can't control. We do the best we can. We take as many steps as we can and we trust that God is with us on the other side. I'd like to think that as a church that people would say, oh, that's what it looks like when Jesus is in our midst. That's what it looks like to live in the already but not yet. Friends, that invitation is waiting for each of us in this Advent season. Let's try. Thanks be to God.